It is February 2014, and some historians of the North End are getting drunk at Erickson's Saloon. Yes, that Erickson's Saloon. This is some kick-ass Oregon history. Once upon a time, Welcome to another installment of Kick-Ass Oregon History, a survey created by the geeked-out history folks at orhistory.com. I'm your host, Andy Lindbergh, and under the guidance of resident historian Doug Kent Crispin, we profile only the most badass, captivating Oregon stories. It's all Oregon sex, drugs, rock and roll, and earth-shattering, devastating destruction. Basically, the good stuff. This week, we examine Erickson's Saloon. Now. I do quite enjoy the characters that have emerged in our broadcasts of Oregon's exciting past. And my partner, Andy Lindbergh, has given such life to quite a few of these memorable individuals. Dr. John McLaughlin, the father of Oregon, and his annoyance, the good Reverend Herbert Beaver. Danford Balch in the agony of losing his daughter. The Rosebergian jeweler, Jack West, on his hands and knees, digging through the shards of glass to find his lost diamonds. And one of the favorites has to be August Erickson. One Sunday morning in 1905 found August Erickson himself taking the stage and announcing, Some people here, sir, came down to sing and talk a little, and would the gentleman please listen quiet and respectful manner, please. Erickson's place was packed at 10. August Erickson opened his legendary bar in what was called the North End, or Whitechapel, or today's Old Town, in the late 1880s. He sold it to Fred Fritz Sr. in 1906, but Fritz continued to operate the joint under the Erickson's name. So in 1914, loggers and canners and soldiers would go into Erickson's. It was just not owned by the old Scandinavian himself anymore. Prohibition hit the place pretty hard, so Fritz gave control of the watering hole to his son, Fred Fritz Jr., in 1920 and he held on to Erickson's until he sold it in 1961. Incarnations of a bar, run under the name Erickson's, continued in that space until 1981. Of course, nowhere near the opulence, the grandness of what historian Joe Streckert calls the bigness of August Erickson's version. Looking back on the historical record now, 
and with the odes that have been scribbled over the ensuing decades, some tall tales of the grandeur of Ericsson's have entered into our familiarity of the joint, and Stuart Holbrook was a huge contributor to the murkiness. But Holbrook was not the only chronicler of these yarns. As an example, we're a little unsure that Ericsson's was actually unrivaled in the Western world, as has been said. But it was certainly the largest saloon on the Pacific coast. Nonetheless, August Ericsson's giant saloon was worthy of a huge legacy. Fifty different brands of whiskey were available at the massive bar, including one with Mr. Erickson's picture on the bottle. King of Oregon Brewers, Henry Weinhardt's, made a special beer to be sold exclusively in Erickson's saloon. Erickson's had the reputation among sailors and seafarers as a place to see when they came into town. A bit like the voodoo donut of today, but with many more whores and actually worthy of a visit. Erickson's saloon for us at Kick-Ass Oregon History has become a character in a favorite play, but the plot is a little hard to follow at times. We are so far removed from the heyday of the establishment, at least 100 years, maybe 125. There is so much that we don't know about the place, and so much exaggeration has been accepted as fact that discussing it authoritatively really is a gray zone. And in a way, that's a very cool thing. In the absence of verifiable truth, the tall tales become our only real options for telling the story of Ericsson's. It's quite convenient for accommodating, and indeed supporting, our collective imaginations of old-timey, rough-and-tumble Portland. But August Ericsson's place will soon be doing another type of accommodating. Let's listen and find out what the hell is going on at Erickson's Saloon now. Uh, this is resident historian Doug Kent Crispin, and I am talking with Sarah Stevenson of Innovative Housing. We're actually inside of Erickson's Saloon, and full disclaimer, Sarah and I went to middle school together in North Portland at uh, John Jacob Astor Elementary. We did. It doesn't get much more Oregon than that. Our parents live just blocks apart. <laughs> that's right, that's right, and they still do. So thanks for joining us today, Sarah, and thanks for allowing us to record the conversation inside of Ericsson's. My pleasure. So tell us, uh, what is Innovative Housing? What do you guys do? Innovative Housing is a private nonprofit. We were founded in 1984, and we develop and own and operate affordable housing, which is low-income housing for people, individuals and families. We've got almost 1,000 units in the Portland area. And we also provide services. So we develop, we own, we operate, and then we help people use that housing as a foundation for success. So we have a whole core of service providers that help people with basic needs, help them access opportunities, increase their income, access benefits, stay stable. 
And you know, that, that's funny because when we were in school uh, during eighth grade, we got like these goofy awards and I got like best basketball player and like best speech giver. And then you got most likely to run a housing nonprofit, I believe. No. So it was kind of a I don't uh, recall eighth oh, grade. <laughs> oh, there we go. Okay. So the Erickson Saloon and Fritz Hotel, tell us about this project that you're doing right now. What's, what's happening here? So we acquired the Erickson and the Fritz, which um, abut in the middle of the block. So the Fritz faces third, Erickson faces second. And we are going to convert these, they're historic buildings, but right now they're vacant commercial shells, and we are going to put housing into them. 62 units, ones and twos, mostly one bedrooms. Um, and we are gonna have an open air courtyard in the center, and so the units will ring these courtyards. And we're going to preserve the buildings as best we can. All the historic fabric that we can save, we will, which is mostly the exterior at this point. Um, and then the, we're also it's going to be mixed income housing, actually. So most of it will be affordable at 50 and 60 percent, which these are a lot of numbers people don't know. But it's mostly workforce housing, people who are working but who need something affordable downtown. Um, and then we have 10 units that aren't restricted at all. So we're trying to really mix it up and include some market rate and bring that to the neighborhood. So you actually own the building then, correct? We do. We acquired it on February 4th. And who did you acquire from? The Bill Nado Company. They owned it for quite a long time. I'm not sure when they acquired it. Because they had the advertising museum in here. They did, and the Nado time. Company did that. And then, so I guess they owned it when the Barracuda was here They as did, well? okay. right. Okay. Now, Broadway Vantage Apartments, uh, Center Commons are two modern, innovative housing projects that you guys own and, and operate and so on. Why not just tear down Ericsson's and build a LEED certified, you know, modular, fancy, five-story building right here? I mean, wouldn't that be more efficient, I guess, when it seems a bit more Portland to have a, kind of a, a LEED certified building here? I mean, LEED is getting very Portlandy, but I don't think that would be very Portland. Actually, you know, we wouldn't we wouldn't demolish something that had historic significance to Portland, and Ericsson's definitely does. It's one of the most famous old saloons here. Um, we do build new from scratch, ground up, but on vacant property. We would never tear down a historic building. And actually, it, it is our opinion that that's not even green. You know, the most sustainable thing we can do is to preserve the building we've already got. If we were to demolish all these bricks, that would be ridiculously unenvironmental. Well, thanks so much for talking to us today, Sarah. I'm really excited about this project. Well, sure. It's my pleasure. We're excited, too. Thanks. Low-income housing is rather appropriate for the olden days Ericsson's. At the saloon, the third floor of the establishment was divided up into little rooms, not much larger than a bed. These little spaces were called cribs. Working men could rent these little rooms by the night or weekly if their purse was a little fuller. Remember, these were transient men staying in Portland for a few weeks, maybe a few months, in between seasonal jobs based around the extraction of natural resources from the Pacific Northwest. These laboring loggers and canners and miners needed somewhere cheap to stay while they were in town, somewhere to lay their head after a long day spent looking for future work and spending that hard-earned but dwindling dough on booze, food, and fun. August Erickson could supply all three of these in spades and happily help these tired men part with their pennies. And of course, the prostitutes at Erickson's also needed space to conduct their transactions. The cribs were a necessary arena at Erickson's. It also seems that August also had a helpful streak in him. 
that went beyond just some economic benefit. Something like a social service net. It had been said of August Erickson, There was no man in Portland more charitable. Some also claimed that because of Erickson's legendary free dainty lunch, hundreds of men who otherwise would have gone to bed hungry every night had a meal. To keep these men fed, it was noted that in four months of 1905, Erickson served four tons of beans, a sizable amount of peas, 10 barrels of dill pickles, and another six more barrels of pork. The commentator proclaimed that few charities in the City of Roses could make such a sizable showing. It was also reported, and not just legend, that Erickson never turned down a hungry man. What would you do if I sang out of tune? Would you stand up and walk out on me? Lend me your ears and I'll sing you a song. I will try not to sing out of key. Oh, baby, how do you Erickson's and a spirit of responsibility to society continues to today, with Innovative Housing recently hosting an event at Erickson's they termed a friend raiser to help promote awareness of the project they were undertaking. Noted risen friend and resident historian Doug Kane Crispin had a chance to attend the gala at the location of the old Erickson Saloon. A little professional historian commentary here. Period parties are tough. It's hard to pull them off without seeming too goofy. But goddamn if Innovative Housing didn't do a pretty good job at honoring the saloon of Ericsson's inside the stripped-out shell that was Ericsson's without making it cheesy. The floors were bare boards, the dust had been swept up, but this was basically the shell of a building that was prepped for some major construction. A very, very cool setting for a period party. This is resident historian Doug Kent Crispin, and I am indeed inside of Erickson Saloon. Well, the shell that was Erickson Saloon, and I am with uh, fellow historian Joe Strucker at hey, this gala party. Joe, of course, was our guest on uh, the old-timey bars or bars I wish you gotten fucked up on. I can't remember the name of the podcast, but Joe talked quite eloquently about Erickson Saloon. Yeah, yeah. Is, is that what you want me to do right now? <laughs> that works fine. So, Joe, here we are uh, in this party inside of Erickson Saloon, and they're getting ready to remodel this space into some low-income housing and so on, but let's say Gus rose from the dead, not as a zombie, but just before he died, and he came in, what would he think of this party? Um, I think Gus would, uh, he'd dig the party, but it would be missing something. Um, first off, there's not nearly enough food. All the descriptions that I've read of Erickson Saloon says that the uh, buffet here, which is nice, there's like rolls and mustard and cheese and, and, here. and meat things, yeah, but uh, all the descriptions descriptions I've read, especially from Stuart Holbrook, is that it was just opulent. You know, Holbrook describes there's sausages and herring and just endless jars of mustard. And uh, he'd probably think, hey, that's it. Yeah. Um, he would notice that there's only one bar. Uh, 
Um, there were close to a 684 foot bar. Right, or however long that bar was. Uh, read conflicting accounts, and he'd say that's not nearly enough bars. He would notice that the crowd here is probably way better dressed than everything in his day. Uh, I haven't seen anybody with a gigantic mustache or huge sideburns or an unkempt beard. Uh, people seem to be not lumberjacks. Um, also, people are gambling with funny money. Um, Ericsson's, uh, apparently they didn't run games, but guys could gamble on their own, and that was just kind of allowed and part of it. Um, so he'd probably like it fine, but he says not enough food, not enough booze, and where's all the gambling? Michael Jones, of the Shanghai Tunnel Tour fame, was present at the party as well. He was kind enough to take a break from the reveling and chat with us a bit and helped to add to the tales of the heyday of the legendary Ericsson Saloon. This is Doug, I'm with uh, Michael Jones from Shanghai Tunnel Tours, and uh, we're here at Ericsson's. What do you think of the party? It's really incredible, but also sad, because it brings back the ghosts that were here. Ericsson was the place to go. In its heyday, you could go to Paris, France, stand on any street corner and wait 15 minutes, and 15 minutes only, and someone would walk by and in some language mention August Ericsson Sloan in Portland, Oregon. That's how famous it was. This is the last hurrah. And as I'm sitting here, I'm thinking, wow, this is it. It's going to be changing, but the nice thing about this, the building's going to be here. And hopefully, there's going to be something, something special that will remind people about its heyday. And if we have anything to do about it, we can create that and bring this back. You know, a little snippet of its history. Let's say for some magical reason, Gus Erickson walked in the door. What would he think about this party tonight? First of all, I'd say, what happened to the place? Because this place was roaring. I mean, really roaring. This, although today when we look at it, say, oh my God, this is incredible. In his day, what he did with his saloon, he would have said, oh my God, no one will come back again. That's how fantastic it was. But if you really step back and looked at the situation, he'd be happy. You know, Erickson's saloon was more than a saloon. It was an institution where the first of everything ended up. The first movie projector in Portland ended up here. Um, Wild Bill Hickok ended up here. He came here. Um, there was just so much that was, this was always the first. Never closed his doors. 365 days a year. When it flooded, guess what? He never closed his doors. He tied a barge to the top of his building, put his women and his booze on the barge. People came in boats. And that's how fantastic it was. Have you enjoyed the dainty lunch? Oh, yeah. Now, Erickson would have a problem with the lunch. You got, for five cents, got a, a beer and an incredible lunch. I mean, the lunch was like a smorgasbord. Um, it was incredible. Well drinks were a dime. And three to five houses of prostitution attached to Erickson. It was the entire block. It was in eight to ten different buildings. Uh, 
um, both above ground and below ground. It was an incredible place. You know, I, I'm really happy about tonight. I'm glad they did this. It's fantastic. Uh, if every other place, when they're making the change, would do something like this, it really adds more to preserve history. Because, like I say, it's the last for all. Thanks for talking with us, Mr. Jones. Thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. The most recent watering hole in the Erickson Saloon building was the Barracuda. And we felt we would be remiss if we didn't collect at least a few memories of that lost, sin-steeped saloon of seediness. Let's call it oral histories. We talked to two gentlemen waiting in line for drinks about this storied meat market bar. And we weren't talking about the dainty lunch, sausages and herring kind of meat on the market. So you went to the Barracuda? Uh, yeah, when it was Barracuda, back in the days. Yeah. What was it like? It was gross. It was really, really, like, I didn't really like it a lot, like, at all. I came here, like, two times um, for, like, a few birthday parties. Up here used to be, like, uh, the VIP area. Yeah. I don't know. The club itself, it was not really my style, you know, but, yeah, you never, yeah. You, sir, you went to the Barracuda? Yeah. What'd you think? It was just a club. It was fun, though. I mean, this whole top floor was like like you were saying it was VIP it had like lots of sheets and veils so you had like these little quarantined off areas for privacy and whatnot and then downstairs you know all the music would be bumping and you had like balloon drops and various theme nights it was a lot of fun now, so. were there naked women at Barracuda was it like a strip club kind of thing I didn't see any like it wasn't like a strip club per se but I mean there were like naughty nights if you will like some of the girls would be like you know scantily clad that kind of thing school girl night shit like yeah 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 exactly it was, it was cool though it was fun everyone had a good time now, Beth Hansen, our favorite bartender at Mary's Club, was also at the friend raiser. Beth had some Barracuda memories too. I should have figured you were here. Yeah, well, you know. I <laughs> and so, can you tell our audience your name? My name is Beth Hansen. And Beth, you and I know each other. Yes, we do. Where do we know each other from? From Mary's Club. That's right. You're always serving drinks anytime <laughs> I'm in there. It would seem. Yep, yep, yep. I try, I try to be there all the time. <laughs> so, Beth, you came here when it was Barracuda here at Erickson's. Mm -hmm. What was what was it like? It was a very young crowd, very loud, a lot of lights, and. Um, a lot more chaotic than right now. <laughs> and if there's a gala event in Old Town, I should have figured you'd be here. I, I'm trying my best to be at all of them. <laughs> That's so, so yes. good to run into you. It's great running into you. <laughs> the resident historian, his wife Rebecca, and Joe Streckert decided to take leave of the party for a few minutes and do a little independent historical field trip. They took an unguided excursion to the third floor of Erickson's saloon, the former location of the Little Cribs. So this is resident historian Doug King Crispin. I'm with my wife on the third floor where all the whores used to be. Right? Yeah, it's a little bit creepy. Did you see the cribs? I did see the cribs. You want to do a little historical reenactment? In the cribs? Yeah. I don't think so. Yeah, this place 
was huge. Yeah. Joe, tell us what, what we're doing now. We are um, trespassing. We've on, snuck away from the party. We've left the party, and we are now in a part of Erickson's salute. I don't think we're supposed to be here. I am. <laughs> How do we get out of the we and can't. We can't get out of the whorehouses. We have. I feel like we've been wandering around in the whorehouse for a really long. We're walking time. around the second and third floor, and it's a great way to see that this place was huge. Enormous. I mean, there was a whole bunch of little, you know, cubicles where <laughs> the guys would sleep and not sleep, and uh, ladies would not sleep with them, and uh, that kind of stuff. By the way, I am not sober right now. <laughs> But yeah, yeah, like I always, <laughs> in I, the always house. I always knew this place was big, but now I'm seeing that really demonstrated because we're walking around. Did you hear that, dear ass kicker? That is why you don't invite the resident historian to your hipster dinner party. He's the asshole that leaves the table during dessert and goes through your underwear drawer. Celebrating history, preserving history, Erickson's could never again be what it was. One wonders if it was an unsustainable economic model, and that helped contribute to Gus's poverty, as we find him on his deathbed. The greatest height of Erickson's was likely the 1890s, maybe the early 1900s. His fortune at one time was rated as high as $200,000, or in today's economy, that's in the region of about $5 million. August owned racehorses, which of course is not a cheap hobby. The guy had been fucking loaded. He had property out on the Clackamas River, which we're going to talk about in a minute. And later, he would race back and forth between Portland and Oregon City in his red limousine. By the time Prohibition hit, the most legendary Portland drinking establishments had switched to selling sodas and, of course, booze illegally on the premises. But the glamour and exuberance from the past had hardly thrived in those dark days, and just a few watering holes and lounges came through that failed social experiment intact enough to be able to reconstruct themselves on the other side. Erickson's was one of the few that did make it. Erickson the man, however, did not fare so well. In 1925, he died at the age of 65 at Good Samaritan Hospital, under federal prison guard for bootlegging, penniless and nearly friendless too. This one-time den of prostitution, founded by a man who went on to flout the law during prohibition and a business that eventually failed. Good riddance, right, ass-kickers? The long-barred Ericsson's has long ago been dismantled and used for scrap. Why bother to keep this shell of an historic building around? Why should we preserve something that could never be again? For the sake of historic preservation, of course. What is historic preservation, anyway? We asked Val Balstrom, 
from the Architectural Heritage Center to consider these questions. This is Doug Kent Crispin of ORHistory.com, and I am sitting down with Val Balstrom, who's the Education Manager at AHC. And Val's agreed to sit down with us and talk a little bit today about historic preservation. Thanks for joining us today, Val. Sure, sure. So let's just cut to the chase. What is historic preservation? Yeah, in general, histor- I would call historic preservation the 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 preservation or conservation of of buildings and places. Um, generally, that's the, generally buildings and places. Sometimes objects, uh, works of art, etc. But but generally, preserving the past for the sake of the future, as you know, in in the form of you know buildings and so forth. So that's a simple way to put it. And what are some examples of historic preservation, and I'm thinking specifically buildings, mm-hmm. in Oregon that our listeners might be familiar with? Well, you know, certainly City Hall, uh, the Multnomah County Central Library is always one of people's most favorite buildings. Um, but, it, you know, it's not just the older stuff. You know, we think of more recent buildings, um, the 1948 Pietro Belusky design Commonwealth Building, um, even the more recent uh, Portland building from the 1980s designed by Michael Graves, you know, it's, it has historic significance and therefore has, you know, it's been designated historic, which in a sense is the first step of historic preservation is getting that designation. So. And uh, Memorial Coliseum. Memorial correct? Coliseum. Um, and you, you could also go back again in time and think about parts of town, Lads Edition, um, Skidmore Old Town Historic District, the Yamhill Historic District, uh, the Alphabet District in Northwest. Um, there's not a lot of a, a lot of other. Most of the historic districts are sort of in the downtown area, <laughs> but uh, but um, um, Laz Edition Irvington is a more recent one. Um, so there's there's some residential ones as well. So those are all good examples of preservation at work. Now, of course, we're talking. Um Kind of specifically in our in our broadcast about uh, the old Erickson Saloon building, mm-hmm. and you know, why should we preserve this building? I mean, I'm thinking, you know, it's low income housing, which of course is a good thing, but I'm thinking of Shaver Green uh, building mm-hmm. over on MLK. Mm-hmm. You know, brand new building, LEED certified, very efficient. Why shouldn't we tear down Erickson Saloon and put in something like something you know with the eco roof, very Portlandy? Sure. There's a couple of there's a couple of concepts to think about with with uh, um, first. First, um, the building is part of the fabric of the Skidmore Old Town Historic District, which is our only, in Portland, it's the only national landmark historic district, which is like the highest level of designation of, as far as historic designation goes. And um, it's part of that fabric. It's not just, you know, you know yes, maybe it's not the grandest building in, the, in that area, but it's part of the fabric, and when you start to lose those bits and pieces, and this is what happens in places where there is no historic designation, um, and the sort of things that we advocate, you know, have advocacy activities related to, um, you, you know, when you start to pick away at those those um, things because you don't think it's important or it doesn't look, it's not the fanciest building on the block, you start to take away that that streetscape, which is the public face of. You know, it's it's the fabric that made up that place. So you're you're preserving you're preserving uh, the fabric, and each each of these buildings acts as a piece of the greater whole. And so when you're looking at a historic district, 
the reason why it is a district, you know, it, it's because everything in there, it's not just one building in particular, it's everything in there together works together and creates a cohesive district. And so you save those buildings um, um, in order to preserve that context. It's really about context. The other side of it, preservation um, has to do with just general reuse of what we already have. And I think this is an important concept for people to you know, understand. And we talk about it a lot nowadays in the historic preservation world about sustainability as you know, really an important part of historic preservation. And, and, and you can almost take the word historic out of this because in some ways it, a building doesn't, shouldn't have to be designated historic in order to be preserved and reused. And so you know, the reuse of a building like the Erickson's building um, you know, it's it's a great example of that sort of sustainable redevelopment, adaptable reuse, so it's sort of is a term that gets used often. And you know, although it's not going to be used like it was originally, the public face of that building, the outside, the, that piece of fabric that people see when they walk through that neighborhood and they recognize they've been they've been seeing it for a hundred years, that's preserved, and that's the important part going forward. In, in as far as the preservation of the community, but then again, the resources that you're preserving by not tearing it down and building something new. Because you can, a lot of studies have been done about new construction versus, you know, re, you know redevelopment or uh, renovating historic, uh, historic or older buildings. And um, in general, the studies typically show that, that most new buildings would take decades to offset the the amount of energy and materials waste you know even if a building's got like all the state-of-the-art green technology in it the amount of uh, energy and materials that are wasted through the demolition and then building process you know and, and um, takes decades to offset and so so that's that's one of the other reasons why we advocate for for building reuse and you know what gets called historic preservation, but it m might be you know a liberal, more more liberal view, and that I tend to personally adhere to is more like building conservation, place conservation. We asked Joe Streckert to consider the same. So here's here's what I've been thinking about. Um, so we're inside this shell that was Eric's, and they're going to turn it into uh, housing. So it will forever be different. This space. Right. But does it fucking matter? I mean, Erickson's was really different once Prohibition hit, and after that as well. I mean, let's talk about historic preservation. In your opinion, what does it really fucking matter what happens to this space? I mean, the Erickson's that was shall never be again. You know, if I had like just zillions of dollars of stupid money, uh, I have thought about this and I'd like, I would love to like just buy this old bar and like do everything I could to like reincarnate it. Like get a bunch of like really gigantic bars, uh, have a big old buffet, put a pipe organ in there and like make it live again. That's like, that's dumb nostalgia talking. The part of me loves it, you know, we can have it back, but now I know that will never ever happen. That Ericsson's is dead and it's gonna stay dead. Uh, Kind of like the Weinards Brewery is gone. They don't make beer there anymore. They just serve it. Um, so I'm a little bummed out that that chance for the space that we're in to be a gigantic bar where people get shit-faced, that's never going to happen again. <laughs> like, people will get shit-faced here, but, like, by themselves at home when they're drinking an entire bottle of wine while watching an HBO show on DVD. And that's just not the same. 
So, do you, do you feel that preserving the shell of this building? I mean, you know, they're going to knock out the roof and put it in a courtyard. It's kind of their hope and that kind of thing. I mean, what's what's the value in preserving the shell of this building uh, when it's something completely fucking different on the inside? Well, we'll always like be able to nod at and be like, that was Erickson's. Lumberjacks got fucked up there. You know, that was cool. And that is something that will be in everybody's mind. And if this was just another one of those, like, whatever, modular pieces of modern architecture, it'd be really easy to ignore, and it would be really easy to tear down again. But as long as there's, like, a little bit of Ericsson's left, you know, there's going to be a little bit of Ericsson's left in everybody's hearts and minds and that kind of stuff. Very touchy huggy kind of answer. It is touchy huggy. Yeah. yeah. I think we lost our space in line interviewing. So, what about the Brothers McMenamin's empire? Is this a good example of historic preservation at work? We asked Joe Streckert his thoughts. My issue with McMinnis. Okay. People say to me, oh, you can go to these great old historic buildings. They got the old chapel, they got the old school, they got the old poor farm out in Edgefield. Uh-huh. But the reality is, they're just fucking shells. And you right. go inside and they got all the crazy VRs. Like, they're all the fucking same. So the poor house out there in Troutdale has, looks exactly like the mortuary up in uh, North Portland by the Florida right. room, but they shouldn't actually look the same, because they're from different ele- places in time, different right. places right there. So, what, what is the value of historic preservation if it's just like this fucking shell that you're preserving? It's better than nothing, which is a bleak answer, but um, if it's that or a wrecking ball, we kind of have to choose that. Um, and there's also, you know, the reality that when we're looking at historical preservation, we're looking at, you know, private companies who have a vested interest in turning that history into part of their branding, and they want it to sell beer or sell apartments or whatever it is, and that is kind of a bitter pill to take. You're like, oh, this thing that I like, it still exists, but not just as a purely public good thing. Uh, it is going to be attached to, you know, whatever, you know, whatever... It's going to be attached to whatever, like, you know, blue jeans or hamburgers or rock and roll that's being appended to it, you know? And you have to kind of pick out the history bits. Uh, when I go to a McMinimins, one of the things that I kind of do is think, okay, what are found objects? What are things that they preserved from when this place was actually active? And what is stuff that the McMinimins house artists did? Or what are things that are commissioned? In some ways, that's a fun game to play, but in other ways, it's a little bit depressing because you realize how much of it is branded and how little of it is actually authentic. And you have to deal with shitty customer service and uh, hockey puck burgers while you're waiting. Yeah, and uh, I think I've eaten enough Captain Neon burgers for, to last me a lifetime. Yeah, I, I think I'm done with those. Shells or not, innovative housing threw an awesome party, and we felt privileged that kick-ass Oregon history was invited to attend. It was a great evening to pay a little tribute to August Erickson and revel in some sinful reenactment and share a little hope for the future project, even for just one crazy night. What about you? Are you-
you enjoying the, the event? I am, very much. It's a good time. It's going to be kind of maybe the last night to really kind of have apartment here. Yeah, right? yeah. yeah. It's going to be apartments. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. So we're, we're kind of passing the Ericsons and the Barracudas of days gone by. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's going to be like house, households. Yeah. Very strange to think about, really. It is. An end of a bygone era. Yeah, yeah, like several yeah. bygone eras. Yeah. This is resident historian Doug Kent Crispin, and I am on the banks of the Clackamas River because we're doing a little research trip here about August Erickson. That's right, on the Clackamas, outside of the OC. How does this come to be? Well, dear ass kicker, let's let Andy lay the story out for us. divested himself of the giant fucking saloon in the north end of Portland, August Erickson owned and operated a roadhouse on the Clackamas River called the Clackamas Tavern. She was a fast machine, she kept the motor clean. She was the best damn woman that I ever seen. She had the sightless eyes telling me no lies, knocking me out. Later than she turned. The Clackamas Tavern is now open for the season under the same management. It has always been noted for its famous chicken dinners, which are still being served up to the standard. Erickson had owned the several-acre plot on the Clackamas for some time, right on the river. Originally described as a swell chicken ranch, the property contained orchards, barns, cows, horses, and around 60 chickens in addition to the large home. In about 1906, he started running the tavern as a dining and lodging establishment as he was departing from his famous North End business. Located four miles up the river from Oregon City, the tavern announced its presence to motorists with placards advertising beer and whiskey along fence lines. It seemed to have worked, as newspaper articles described the scores of Portlanders coming to his roadhouse nightly in taxicabs and touring cars. Roadhouses, like Erickson's, 
caught the ire of Portland's progressives and other moral crusaders. And for the party crowd in the era, they were all the rage. For the more nature-inclined, August's location was a delightful destination on a hot summer's day. One could enjoy the cooling waters of the Clackamas River, finishing with a filling chicken dinner and a few drinks, capturing a memorable, relaxing day. Others viewed the roadhouse as just one stop on a debaucherous expedition, a joyride, as the authorities termed it. Drinks in a taxi on the way, partying at the roadhouse, and then more drinks and perhaps even sex in the car on the way back to Portland. The term orgy was often applied to the objective of these trips by the local press. The Clackamas Tavern seems to have been a bit of a bon ton place. A dining room, a separate bar room, and multiple guest lodging rooms comprise the actual tavern itself. With its famous chicken dinners and pints of whiskey available for the road, August Erickson did everything he could to make guests feel welcome at the roadhouse. Kai Sai fraternity members from the Portland area had their 1910 midsummer reunion at the tavern, complete with speeches and songs. And the Cardinal Men graduates of Stanford University came to Erickson's Clackamas Resort for their annual alumni dinner. This was not some North End working man's honky-tonk. And then Prohibition came along in 1916. Erickson wasn't going to allow a little technicality get in his way of selling some spiritous liquors. He had made a fortune many times over marketing booze and not even something as daunting as, say, oh, prohibition would curtail Erickson's entrepreneurial endeavors. At the tavern, Erickson had a concrete vault camouflaged away behind a wall. Authorities stumbled upon the secret blindly and inside they found a sizable inventory of wine and whiskies. There were also kegs of homemade wine and the apparatus to bottle this elixir of Bacchus. It should also be said that Erickson may have gone a little nuts at some point. He had always been a man unafraid of violence, as Thomas Keefe found out one night in 1893. Drunk, Keefe wandered into Erickson's North End Saloon and got into a disagreement with the owner. August took one of their large, legendary schooners and struck Keefe right on his forehead, crumpling the inebriate's nose with the blow and splitting a several-inch wound into the man's scalp. But out in Clackamas, August seemed to get even more weird and cracks began to appear in his empire. In 1913, several Japanese waiters under his employ had reported that Erickson was not paying them 
And furthermore, he had borrowed $200 from one of the waiters and refused to pay it back. Then, in May of 1917, everything went shithouse. Drunk as a skunk, Erickson got into an argument with his wife. He grabbed a 40-40 rifle and fired several shots at her and stopped only because one of his cartridges became stuck and jammed the rifle. One of the boarders heard the disturbance and warning Erickson to stop caught the ire of the saloon keeper. Erickson grabbed a meat cleaver and chased his guest. The boarder locked himself into his guest room, but Erickson began hacking at the door with the cleaver. Here's August. Luckily, the gentleman escaped through his window before Erickson had hacked through the door and broken into the room. Pleading guilty, August was sent to jail for a while, and he and Maria were mercifully divorced. <laughs> Gus continued his descent from there. Incarcerated for a frighteningly short amount of time for someone who tried to kill his wife, he was again arrested in 1920 with four pints of moonshine whiskey in his possession. Unable to pay the $150 fine, he went back to jail. Poor health rocked his body, and who knows, maybe his soul too. I wish we could say that the tale ended with smiles und sunshine, but it just doesn't. August Erickson is a cornerstone of Oregon history, and it's really fucking cool that the legendary saloon he established, well, at least the shell of it, is going to experience a revitalization, and his world-famous whorehouse is going to once again become a place where people stay and hopefully establish family homes devoid of the pain and misery that must have accompanied the prostitutes, the alcoholics, and the permanently down on their luck that Erickson fed even if they couldn't buy a nickel beer of house brand Henry Weinhardt's. It's a fucking engaging story to tell, a story that is pregnant with themes of adventure and debauchery, fortunes made and lost, the dreary existence of the seasonal laborer or sex worker just trying to get by. And this innovative housing project is a good transformation, and maybe the passing of the Ericksonses and the Barracudas is a good milestone in our town's history. New memories will be established, children will be raised in happy homes, and Old Town will experience a new vitality, all behind the shell of Erickson's saloon. 
And of course, places are more than just the outside walls that enclosed those spaces. But at least that portion of history, that facade of grand old timey days Oregon, will be preserved for many, many years. I really enjoyed getting into this podcast, and I hope you enjoyed it too. I got to read about a different side of August Erickson, a side which I hadn't known before. Yes, his Clackamas Tavern, which is not spoken about much in our era, but also the complexity of the man's character, this compassionate, rich man that would feed anyone hungry. But he was a total fucking asshole that shot at his wife with a rifle. Five times. It's a side of his heritage that isn't spoken of at all anymore, and it deserves to be brought into the dialogue of this complex, multifaceted man. In addition, we get to revisit the history of his North End establishment and the tall tales that have been accepted over the decades. And one detail I keep coming across is just how long was that big fucking bar? Like, really how big? I hope this question is interesting to you too, dear ass kicker. Interesting enough to tune in to a future podcast where we will examine just that question. Once upon a time there was a for listening ass kickers and be on the lookout for future podcasts from orhistory.com we hope that you agree that this episode featured some kick-ass oregon history today's podcast was written recorded edited and produced by doug kank crispin and andy Lindbergh. citations are available on request kick-ass oregon history is on twitter at oregon underscore history we're also on the Facebook. The email address is OregonHistorian at gmail.com. We'd like to thank our friends at Eastside Distilling, crafters of Burnside Bourbon, for their generous support. Want more kick-ass Oregon history in your life? Learn more at ORHistory.com. And coming up, on March 18th at 7.30 p.m., it's Beat Night at the Jack London Bar. Listen to some classic beat readings, discussions about the beats in Oregon, and an open mic for you to share your shitty stream of consciousness poetry or bongos or guitar or whatever you want to, man. Naked Winery will be there, too, sampling some of their Vintner's favorites. So please... Join us on March 18, 2014, for Beat Night at the Jack London Bar. Just don't get too close to Mr. Kent Crispin. 
his stream of consciousness will inevitably end in unconsciousness. You stay historic, Oregon, and kick ass. orhistory.com